Today we arrive at Isaiah chapter 33. But before we read Isaiah 33, I want you to look at 2 Samuel or 2 Kings 18. And here's the reason. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are several books that advance the historic narrative of God's redemption. So it follows the timeline. There are histories. In 1 and 2 Samuel, that's part of the history in the Old Testament. Uh, there are other books. But then 1 and 2 Kings, and then 1 and 2 Chronicles. And the books of Kings and Chronicles are what they say about themselves. The, the story of the kings of Israel, uh, First and Second Kings, more uh, the United Kingdom, and then after it divides, Second Kings focuses on the south because that's all that's left. King Hezekiah, who's the king during Isaiah 33, and then First and Second Chronicles are predominantly about the south. Um, but they all give insight to the kings of Israel and advance the story. So if you just read through them, you would see what was happening on a national level, um, what God was doing uh, in the life of Israel, the church in the Old Testament. Isaiah is a prophet who ministered over the course of several kings' lives. So to understand Isaiah 33, we should go to 2 Kings 18 because it tells the story that serves as the backdrop for what we then read in Isaiah 33. So before I read Isaiah 33, turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings 18. That's page 325 on your, your pew hymnal uh, uh, Bible. Everybody has to have their Bibles open, though, to, to really gather everything's being said. So open your electronic version, your hard copy, or the pew Bible, 325, 2 Kings 18. And I'm going to read for you God's Word. I'm going to pause along the way, make a few comments. Since there's lots of text there, I want you to have a, a, a grasp of it so that Isaiah 33 makes more sense to you. Uh, Hear now God's holy word, 2 Kings 18, starting at verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now, if you can imagine on a map for a moment where Jerusalem is, in those days, all that was left of God's people as far as the region was Jerusalem in an outlying area that forms almost a circle. Fifty miles from north to the south, 25 miles across, they lost all the coastal land on the Mediterranean because the Assyrians had it occupied with their ships. So it's a small area around Jerusalem that's left. And Assyria is coming. They have some fortified cities outside of Jerusalem, but Assyria is coming towards Jerusalem to take the south now, just like it took the north. Back to the text, verse 14. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. You see, Assyria found out that Hezekiah was trying to enlist Egypt to fight the Assyrians for them. They were upset, and they came in on Judah. And you see Hezekiah apologizing to the Assyrians. And they say, give us cash. He's saying, I wanted you to take leave of us. What can I do? They say, give us hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's what it amounts to. Verse 15. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. 
So Hezekiah is taking the precious metals from the temple of Yahweh and giving it to the pagan king Sennacherib so that they wouldn't attack. Verse 17, we see what the Assyrians do. They put the money in their pocket. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rab Saris, and the Rab Shekah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. Though they kept coming. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, their water source, which is on the highway to the washer's field. So instead of, re- instead of relenting after taking payment, they sent three of their strongest divisions to capture Jerusalem. Paying them off did not work any better than trying to enlist Egypt. Verse 18. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? I mean, with the temple in the background of the Lord God Almighty, the Assyrian king says, he's the king. In Hezekiah, you show no other trust but in him, Sennacherib, not Yahweh. Verse 21, they scold Judah in Hezekiah. Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Mockery for their attempt at enlisting Egypt. Verse 22, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Is it the God you say you trust in, the one that he stripped the metal off of to save yourself from us? Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? They noted Hezekiah's disgrace of the temple of God to pay off the Assyrians and mocked the idea that he would ever call the people of Judah to trust in Yahweh. Hezekiah was essentially admitting that Assyria was sovereign, not their God. For Judah and for Hezekiah, we would have to say they have hit rock bottom. Now, it's not that they hadn't hit rock bottom as a people before or that they wouldn't hit it again, but they're at rock bottom. I mean, there's nowhere lower they can go at this point. And these are the people that God raised from Abraham to be a great blessing, and now they're groveling before Assyria. This is a people that multiplied at a supernatural rate when they were in captivity in Egypt, now shivering under the shadow of Sennacherib in his advance. These are the people who witnessed God move with them in the wilderness, giving water where there was no water, where there was food where there was none, providing protection where they had none. These are the same people who saw the hand of Yahweh rescue them out of Egypt in the first place, lifting back the waters of the Red Sea 
Now they're cowering before Assyria. The nation that watched God's greatest deliverance stripped the temple of God to pay off Sennacherib to leave them alone. This nation now turned to utter jello in the presence of a pagan king, even as he mocked the God of Israel. For Judah, this has to be rock bottom. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Great God, we are humbled by what we have read. Indeed, it is a true account of history. We are humbled by what we very very clearly relate with here in the text. An embarrassing place at the rock bottom for a people called by your name. Despite all the privilege, despite all the deliverances, despite all the interventions, despite all the grace, still they turned away from you. And God, we confess the same tendency as a church and as Christians. Despite all the grace that you have shown us, showered upon us, we turn to other securities, other protections, other provisions, rather than to rely on you who have never failed us even once. Please teach us about your dealings with your people so that we might praise you. But also, O Lord, please open our eyes to the truth of your word so that our lives may be touched and changed by yet another picture of your grace, a grace that you give even when we are at what seems to be rock bottom. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, what do I mean by rock bottom? When I say it, you all know what that idiom refers to because it's used commonly in our culture. It's the lowest point you can reach possible. Now, oftentimes it's used to describe someone who's caught up in addiction, drug addiction especially. It's a time when the person feels like things cannot get any worse for them. Their life has been damaged so badly that it seems like there's nothing good left to destroy. It's a time called rock bottom. After years of use, uh, she reached rock bottom, it's been said. But this term is used for other descriptions of helplessness or hopelessness too. Um, The marriage was at rock bottom. Um, The country was at a rock bottom point uh, when it reached its economic crisis. Um, I've heard it even used in commerce or in business, like in an advertisement. We have rock bottom prices. They couldn't possibly get lower than the prices we have here. Even this week, two days ago, on ESPN, there was a short post about the quarterback, Johnny Manziel, and all the personal problems he found himself in. And even his agent, who never gets rid of anybody, God threatened to get rid of him if he didn't go into rehab for an alcohol problem. And he was going to be dropped. And ESPN described the situation as Manziel hitting rock bottom. I don't know if that's true. Is there any lower, any lower place that he could go or we could go? That's what we mean when we say we've hit rock bottom. The idiom alludes to the presence of a bedrock that, as we're digging, prevents us from going further. That's what is meant. Surely, we'd have to say at this point, Judah is at rock bottom. I mean, there is nothing left. They're exposed completely. Their plan with Egypt failed. Their plan to pay off the Assyrians failed. Even after using money, stripped from the temple of God to pay them off. I mean, how low can you possibly go? Even to the point where it prompted the mocking of the pagan nation Assyria. And they even had the nerve to tell the envoys that Hezekiah sent, go back and tell the people, not just Hezekiah, tell the people this. And in 1830 in 2 Kings, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, 
the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Don't let him lie to you about this. Don't let Hezekiah say this. Your punishment will be far worse if you continue to resist. That is rock bottom for the nation, for the people. Now here is the beauty of this place called rock bottom. It is at rock bottom where God's grace manifests itself most clearly. Now it's true that God's grace showers us continually in Christ as believers. But when we hit rock bottom and there is nothing left to acknowledge or nothing to look to the right or to the left and see as help except for God himself, that is a place where his grace shows all the clearer, all the more vividly, it's all the more tangible because nothing else can help us or save us or provide for us. Rock bottom can be a good place for us when we see God there. Rock bottom leaves only one choice for his children. To repent where repentance is necessary and to trust God. Now, let's see how this unfolds before us in Isaiah 33. Now, Isaiah 33 is on page 593. The events are parallel. This is the message Isaiah gave during Hezekiah's reign. Now, Hezekiah, for his 14 years, was pretty unfaithful as a king. He was no better than the kings that came before him, and they were pretty bad. But this event, this episode with Sennacherib, changes Hezekiah altogether. And he enjoys an excellent reign, even in the midst of the pressures of the changing empires around him in this small landmass that Judah occupies. Because he trusts in God, we see a real change. But this is the point of change. This is him, King Hezekiah, at rock bottom. And this is the nation at rock bottom. The first nine verses, we see what it looks like hitting rock bottom. The, the, the confession or the calling out of the people of God. All options exhausted. And this is what the response of Israel is. Verse 1. Ah, you destroyer. He's talking about Assyria. Who, your, you, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor. They're talking about how you took our money and you didn't do what you said whom none has betrayed. You're just taking advantage of everybody with your power. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. You could sense an embarrassment. They know they're caught. Their first response is to lash out in anger against Assyria, even though Assyria is not the real villain in the story. Uh, They're actually, we know, the hand of God's discipline upon them for their distrust. And they're just manifesting this as the first thing they do is lash out, calling them betrayers, which is true, but that's who they were. Destroyers, which is true, but they will get theirs. Rock bottom has been reached. Desperation is at its highest. Now verse 2, where they finally are meant to arrive. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. What else are they going to do at rock bottom? Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Present tense. Brothers and sisters, when you are at rock bottom, the wrong response is to ignore your only hope. Just admit it. Just admit it. Even in the midst of the shame and the embarrassment, we, are called out, we call out to God for salvation. If you want a rock-bottom prayer, O oh Lord, be gracious to us, we wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Now, in this episode, I realize 
Israel, they have, they have arrived at this place mostly of their own doing. So I want you to understand, if you feel at rock bottom, it may not be your fault. You could be the victim of something else. Whatever the case, when you're at your lowest point, when you feel like you can't go any lower, that's the time to pray this rock bottom prayer. Oh Lord, be gracious to me. I wait for you. Be my arm every morning, my salvation in this time of trouble. Never mind in the case of Judah, they were ignoring God for so long. Never mind they're seeking sufficiency and sustenance in every other place till that point in this time in history. They were in real trouble. And only real help could be called upon. And the next statement of trust in what God can do shows uh, that this is real. Verse 3. At the tumultuous noise, that's the noise of God's arrival, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers, and locusts leap, it is leapt upon. God's intervention will be seen and felt by all as the people call upon them. And they know this will be painful for them. When God arrives, there will be a pain that is associated. But now Isaiah the prophet, in essence, in this annal of his message, turns to them in verse 5 and 6, like he's speaking to the people, and he says, the Lord is exalted. Why? Because you've called upon his name, finally. You've finally called upon God, and the Lord is exalted. For he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and that will be painful for all sin. And he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. And I hope you catch this. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. You know where they thought their treasure was? They thought their treasure and their security and their buyout was found in the silver and the gold in the king's treasury and in the temple. They believed this was their security. If they would give this money to Sennacherib, he would let them go. If we could buy ourselves out of this, if we could figure out a way. And here, the testimony of the prophet is that's not where your fear should lie. In the Assyrians. In your trust in the gold. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. The treasure itself is your right understanding and relationship with God. That's where real gold and silver lies. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Verse 6. And he will be the stability of your times. Brothers and sisters, our security comes from the fear of the Lord. This is a timeless message for the people of God, for Christians individually and for us as a church, the people of God. Riches will not sustain God's people. Your 401k will not be the surety of your future. Government legislation will not protect God's people. Lobbyists will not safeguard the church. Laws will not buy us religious freedom. Compromising God's word compromising his standards to appease a godless culture, to pay them off, will not buy us peace with that culture. They'll do the same thing Assyria did. They'll take our money and our sellout, and they'll keep advancing. We have before us where clear security for the people of God comes. And he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Isaiah depicts the instability of the godless when Yahweh visits them. Verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The same three arrogant 
pompous princes who led those three divisions who then spoke against Hezekiah. Those heroes, they'll be crying in the streets. The envoys of peace, they'll be weeping bitterly. Their smugness will be wiped from their faces. Verse 8, the highways lie waste. Not those easy ways they came right in on Jerusalem. The highways will lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. So all those godless deals they struck, they'll be broken. They will be dealt the same treachery and broken covenants that they dealt others. In the land they thought would bear them spoil will give them nothing because it was the Lord who is behind the fruitfulness of that land to begin with. Verse 9. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. No fruitfulness left. Brothers and sisters, hitting rock bottom, this place that they have confessed to, leaves only one choice for, their, for God's children. And that is for them to repent and trust in God. They call upon God, God visits, and all sin is exposed. And the people of God, when they're confronted with their God, then they are made to trust in Him. They're thrust in His presence and upon Him in faith. The opening verses in chapter 33 are words from Judah when they are at rock bottom and they call out to God. See what happens next in verse 10 and following. We have here God answering them and the people trusting Him again. Verse 10, now I will arise, says the Lord. The people have called upon him, now I will arise. Notice he doesn't say, now I will save you. That comes, but the purpose of God is that he would arise. Now I will lift myself up, now I will be exalted. Our salvation is not the main point of God, it's his glory. And his saving us is one of the chief ways he manifests his glory. But let's get the order right. His purpose is not to save you out of your predicament. It's to glorify himself. And he'll save you out of your predicament in time and ultimately in Christ for sure. But there might be a period of time where we struggle through this process as he works to save us over time and shows his glory through that process. As difficult as it may be, as a struggle may ensue and be part of the process. But I will arise, says the Lord. When you call upon me, this thing that you have called for is the greatest of all things that could happen. God's plan for our deliverance is tied to his glory. He will lift himself up before the nations, and in so doing, then his people will be lifted up too, as they are steadfast, even in the midst of terrible oppression. We cannot find satisfaction in exalting or delivering ourselves. Our satisfaction as the people of God will be found only in one place, the exaltation of God Almighty. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. With the people broken at rock bottom, they are the place necessary now to give all recognition to the only one who deserves honor, credit, and praise. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I've reached rock bottom and God's not here and I can't manifest. No, that's exactly where he will now be lifted up from. And you might say to yourself, judgmentally, well, that person who came to faith right before they died, or that person, they're in a real troubled spot, so that's why they're calling on God. Exactly. That's the point. Don't judge that. It's at rock bottom that God's grace meets us, so we've got nothing else. And of course they turn to Christ. That's great. We should... Praise God for that, not judge the person. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. 
Man is empty of fruit or glory in himself. See how Isaiah puts it, verse 11 and verse 12. It's just talking about the state of man here to remind us of what we have the ability to produce. You conceive chaff. That's the stuff you throw out. You give birth to stubble. Your breath is a fire that will consume you. What comes out of you that you think is so great will actually consume you. And the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down and are burned in the fire. Man has to know his place. Man has no power to produce apart from God. And God, he calls out to mankind, verse 13, Hear you who are afar off what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Those who are in Syria and outward, hear what I've done. See this. It's on display. And those close who hear, you call to me. The sinners in Zion are afraid, verse 14. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. He's giving them reason to trust him when they are walking with him. These are the securities that will come. When those who are truly sorry and repentant hear the standards of God, they're broken and they turn to God for forgiveness and salvation. When those who are godless and rebellious hear these same words, they're stiff-necked and they're doomed. And God is glorified in both cases. God answers Judah's cry And their trust is restored. When you cry out to God, I'm not saying he'll deliver you out of the pit immediately, but he'll restore your trust in him in a way that only he can do when you truly cry out to him from rock bottom. Expect to be confronted at first with a realization of your sin or just your humanness. Again, it might not be something you did to get to rock bottom, but you're human and you're broken. And it's painful at first, but... From that place of brokenness, that's where we really start to conceive and perceive the grace of God to us and start to realize how much we have to praise him for. Expect this revelation that he gives. This revelation of your sin to be the precursor to your deliverance. What is God's response to faith? Well, he saves those who trust in him in a a salvation that's far greater than taking us out of a temporal circumstance necessarily. God saves those who trust in him. Look at verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. As Isaiah is keen to do, he brings in the ultimate destiny of all believers, and he brings it into stark view so that the people in the immediate circumstance can gain courage. It's not try talk we talk about what God will do ultimately in glory. It's that vision of heaven and the heavenly state that gives us securities now under suffering, under trial, under difficulty. Now he may give us, and he does often give us small deliverances and freedoms from time to enjoy. We enjoy this so much. But the promise is ultimate. It's way greater than those temporary deliverances. And he wants us to think in terms of what is ultimate to help us with the temporary. And we see it over and over again in the prophets. And I'm not afraid to repeat it because God repeats it so often. Why? Because it's not natural for us to think that way. We think God saving us means get me out of the problem I'm in now. He's saying, I will get you out of a bigger problem. A much bigger problem. 
your eternal destiny and future. And because you know that, please, in the, in the immediate circumstances, think differently about it. See differently about it. Let me glorify myself through you, speaking humanly, of course. God saves those who trust in him, everyone. Verse 18, your heart will muse on terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? You know, where are the Assyrians now is what we'll say. Those who oppress us now or the thing that affects us now, it'll be nothing. We'll muse on that terror. Where is he who counted the towers, the one who weighed militarily how they would advance? Verse 19, you will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in tongue that you cannot understand. The fear that you are now experiencing will be gone. Those who seem so powerful will be as nothing. Those godless foreign oppressors will press you no farther when you trust in me. That is what God says. Christians very well may undergo temporary persecution and oppression from the godless. God may not give us immediate deliverance from that trouble on earth. Indeed, for most Christians, if we're honest, if we look up and look around, they experience terrible temporal opposition as God grows his church even through this terrible trial. But we are to know for certain, the people of God, that he will bring his justice and he will lift all those who are under King Jesus in the final day. Let this ultimate picture give all of us strength and faithfulness for today. It's what he said back in verse 10. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. When God's people trust and hold fast, even under terrible pressure and oppression, God is exalted. When God makes all things right, he will be exalted. Verse 20. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. What a great picture of ultimate deliverance. And that's what this is. It gives us hope and it gives us strength. It gives us courage in the face of temporal suffering, pain, and persecution. I want you to look at the last verses where we see this process unwind, if you will. God is glorified by our salvation. And we are made whole. Verse 21, but there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley galley or oars can go, nor a majestic ship can pass. He's referring to the, the galleys were ships usually of war, and they were no doubt assembled in the Mediterranean Sea, and the Israelites knew them. Um, these warships symbolized the wars of earth and the oppressions of men. And they will be no longer. There won't even be the majestic ships that represented commerce, which we think of as a good thing generally, but commerce was used as a weapon in these days, especially to oppress. And you didn't have provisions if you didn't have ties to the commerce. And there will be no need for these because God will provide for all these things for us. No warships, no ships for commerce. God will provide all that is needed. Verse 22 For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. So no more unfaithful kings of Israel or Judah, no oppressing kings from other nations. God himself will reign and be our savior. Verse 23, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. 
No more injustice, no taking advantage of people, no oppression of poor and lame, the poor and the lame. There will be justice, there will be equity, there will be provision for all. In verse 24, and the inhabitant will say, I'm sick. You know, the, the most personal of anxieties, that we're sick. No inhabitant will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So this picture of the future Isaiah paints for the people who in the present are under great duress. They have hit rock bottom. They've cried out to God, and God said, now I will rise. And I will rise by promising you salvation, and I will hold you through this, and you be faithful, and this will manifest my glory to the earth. Brothers and sisters, uh, please see that the way, the way this truth of this passage here it speaks to us on two levels, I believe. First, on a corporate level, the level of the church collective, the people of God, called by God's name. We will constantly have a choice to make in this culture, or whatever culture we find ourselves. It doesn't matter where the church is, whatever, wherever there's believers. Believers will always have the choice to make about loyalty to their God. Now, on one hand, absolutely, Christians are to live peaceably among all men, We're to bear witness to the peace of Christ so as to be a witness about Christ and his gospel, which brings peace. Absolutely. But on the other hand, it comes time for recognition. When Christians are not to sell out concerning the righteous standards of God, not because we're holier than thou, but because God says so in his word and tells us to be marked by these things. We should not sell out to these things thinking for a minute that a godless culture would cut us a break. They will not. Just like Hezekiah thought he could buy out Assyria, the culture will not, we can't buy them out by saying, oh, I guess your standard's okay, never mind what the Bible says. They will never, ever give us peace. Either way. So let's do what God says. A godless culture will never strike a deal with God. The people of God must fear him alone, even at cost of ridicule, scorn, and being marginalized. Who should we fear? Assyria or God? It says in verse 5 of our passage, The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. It's the fear of the Lord that is Zion's treasure. Now, on the personal level, for individual Christians, you think of rock bottom, and you think of those desperate times in our lives where we really feel like we can't go any lower. Maybe you find yourself at that point, however you got there. Like I said, it could be nothing you did. You just find yourself there. It's a metaphor. It's well-known and vivid, but let's think about the metaphor, because I think it's actually part of the answer. You know what I mean when I say rock bottom. The lowest point where you cannot dig any further. You stop. But we see again through Judah in this passage How even at this lowest point, God meets us at rock bottom. He gives us salvation. He gives us grace there. It's often at this lowest point where we perceive God's grace most tangibly and most clearly. Why is God's grace so realized when we hit rock bottom? I think ultimately it's because Jesus is that rock. We never go lower than Christ allows for us. Verse 16 of Isaiah 28 is a prophecy of who Jesus would be, the Messiah. Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, 
a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You cannot go lower than Jesus lets you. When you are at your lowest, you think you're alone, and you hit the rock, that it's at rock bottom, it is there where you meet Christ. Speaking of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, Paul writes of another time the Israelites were at rock bottom. They couldn't provide for their food, for their water, or their protection in the wilderness. And the words of Paul help us. And all ate the same spiritual food, the manna that God had sent, and all drank the same spiritual drink, the water they sent. At least that's outwardly what they thought they were eating and they were drinking. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Have you hit rock bottom? Jesus is the rock. He is there with you. Turn to him, and he will say, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. He is exalted by your salvation, by the deliverance he brings you in ultimate terms. When he saves us at rock bottom, only he can be exalted. And ultimately, in a time not too long from now, he will say, no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, I pray for uh, the church.